Now, that's recording. Okay, take your Bibles. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you're not already there. Like, like the majority of the New Testament letters, the book of Hebrews kind of falls into two broad pieces. The first part is a doctrinal section where truth is expressed, and then the second part is the, the applicational part. I don't like to call it the practical part because I believe that theology is practical, but it's, it's the hands-on part. It's what do we do now that we've learned this truth, what do we do with it? Uh, Hebrews does have a longer doctrinal portion than most of the New Testament books. Romans is pretty long as well. Um, as we've seen, the book of Hebrews, letter of Hebrew, the, to the Hebrews was written to Jews who had confessed faith in Christ, some of them genuinely, some of them uh, not quite, and some of them were probably false in that confession. And they're being tempted to, to turn back. Um, for various reasons, some because it was hard, some because of persecution, some because the temple suddenly seemed to be more impressive to them. It was just more of, a, of, a, of an experience to have. And the writer of Hebrews argues in, in those first ten and a half chapters about the supremacy of Jesus Christ to everything else. And the reason that he goes on so long, the reason that he doesn't just say, okay, you Jews who have believed in Jesus, don't go back. That's a waste of time. Now let's move on. It's, it's because these people were, were deep-seated in their traditions. Their, their beliefs were deeply held. And I, I'm not actually sure about Jewish women in general, but Jewish men in general had a pretty good understanding of their own belief system. And so he doesn't just say, just forget all that believe in Jesus, he says, let me show you why, and let me show you why in detail that you need to do this. And now we come to the, the, the part that really deals with application from this part of chapter 10 all the way through the end of the book. We're going to look at, uh, I'm, I'm going to read verses 19 through 25, and we're not going to cover quite that much in the message this morning. He writes, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord, as we come to these, these words, we ask for your help. We ask for the help of your Spirit to open our eyes to open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand, that we would believe, and that we would long to put these things into practice into our lives, that we may be more like you, that we may please you more and more each day and glorify your name. So we ask for your help because we need your help desperately to do this. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. So in those first three verses there, 19 through 20, 
the writer tells us that we have two things. We have two possessions. And, and when I say possessions, I, I don't mean that we, we own them like we, we, we own a book and we possess it and we can do anything that we want with it. Uh, we have them in the same sense that we have a president, that we have authority over us. It's not so much that we own these things as we are under them, but, but they are still kind of a form of possession and they mark us and they identify us. The first thing that he says is that we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus in verse 19. Now, why do we have this confidence? Well, verse 20 says it's because Jesus inaugurated a new and living way for us through the veil and the veil being his flesh. Jesus opened the way for us to come in. As Jesus was dying on the cross, when he yielded up his spirit, the veil in the temple was, was rent in two. This was a massively thick piece of, of multiple layered fabric that normally took two men to hold open so the high priest could go in on the Day of Atonement. Jesus tore it from the top. Jesus destroyed it from the top down. But the significance of the veil being torn is not that you and I can go into the temple now in Jerusalem and go before the Ark of the Covenant. The significance of the veil being torn is that the way to God has been opened up for us. It's called a new and living way. So because Jesus died and rose again, we have the confidence to enter the holy place. We, we don't slink in the back. We don't kind of sneak in and try and hide, um, try to figure out a way to, to be nondescript for fear that somebody might see us and then throw us out because we don't belong. We walk in with confidence. Some translations say we have boldness. Being confident, having boldness doesn't mean that we don't respect the Lord. It doesn't mean that we don't respect him or the holy place. It doesn't mean that we aren't grateful. It doesn't mean that we take any of those things for granted, but that we do come with boldness and confidence. Now, let me be clear about this. When it says we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, it doesn't say we feel confident to enter. It says we have confidence through his blood. We have a new and living way through the blood of Jesus. It doesn't mean we feel like we belong there. We're not talking about an emotional experience that we have, but something that is based on the truth revealed in Scripture. So this, this first truth is that we have confidence because of what Jesus did to enter into the holy place through this new and living way that he has inaugurated. And our confidence is not based on our holiness, but on his, on his work on the cross. The second thing it says that we have is in verse 21, that we have a great high priest over the house of God, a great priest over the house of God. I keep inserting high priest because that's what he is. But we have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the husband of the church. He is the king of the kingdom of God. He's Lord of lords. And he is the high priest who intercedes for us constantly, all the time. 
When it says he is over the house of God, it doesn't mean that he's over a building. It doesn't mean that he's over a, a cathedral or a chapel or some kind of physical structure. And it doesn't mean that he's over a corporation. I don't know when churches in the United States began to become incorporated nonprofit entities. It was probably sometime in the 1900s, probably not before that, perhaps, I guess. But the house of God is us. The house of God is those people who have been born again in Jesus Christ and baptized by the Holy Spirit into his body. And we gather together, we are the church. That's the only thing that you've got with church in Scripture is us. And Jesus is head over us. He is Lord over us. He is king over us. And he is the high priest over us. He is our mediator. He is our mediator. And so when you enter with the confidence that Jesus has opened up a new and living way through his flesh, by his blood, when you enter, you will find your high priest there waiting for you. You will never enter the holy place and find that Jesus is missing. You'll never find him absent. You'll never find a group of Christians standing around saying, I don't know, I don't know where he went. He said he'd meet us here. I guess we'll wait for him. I'm really annoyed. It's a petty thing, but I'm really annoyed whenever people pray, Lord, come to us now. Christians get together. Their church is gathering this morning praying, Lord, come to us. We invite you. You don't need to invite him. He's there. We bring him with us because the Spirit of God is in us. If anything, the Scripture never says he enters into us, the church now. It says we are to enter into the holy place. So that, that's it. I mean, that's the teaching portion of it. It's not very long. We have confidence to enter the holy place. We have a, a high priest. So what do, what do we do with this then? What do we do with this? Well, the text I read has three let us statements in it. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and and good works. Those are the the three points of application for for these verses. I am usually very hesitant to give application because I don't know your lives to the kind of detail to be able to do that. One application almost never applies to everybody. But whenever the scripture gives us an application, we know that that application does apply to everybody. And when the application is given to us as clearly as it is here, I'm bold to say, here's what God calls us to do. We're going to take each of these a week at a time. This morning, we're just going to talk about drawing near. So we're to draw near. What does it mean to draw near? It means to come to the Lord in prayer. That's the only way you can draw near to him in this life. The only access you have to God in this life is through prayer. He can come to you in all kinds of ways. I'm not putting God in a box. I'm not going to say he's unable to do anything he desires to do. But you can't come before him through any means but prayer. Worship is prayer. Pouring your heart out to him in grief is prayer. Rejoicing is prayer. That's how we draw near as we come to him in prayer. Uh, For some people, that may seem to be a little thing, a small thing. 
But being able to draw near to the Lord is huge. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the history of the fall of man. Adam sins, Eve sins, sin is introduced, death is introduced. God deals with them uh, each individually. He deals with the serpent who uh, Satan has embodied and he curses the serpent and he curses Satan. He dresses them in in, uh, fresh animal skins. The first time you have the death of an animal in place of the death of a man. But Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 24, makes this really significant statement. I've got to get all the way back to almost to the index here. Table of contents. It says, So God drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve sinned. They'd had intimacy with God. Adam and Eve sinned and he drove them out. And and from that point on until Jesus comes, whenever you see people praying, the overwhelming majority of the time, they're praying at a distance. They're praying with separation. God's visits to Abraham, the Lord coming and or the angel of the Lord coming and wrestling with Jacob, those are the, the exceptions to the rule. God speaks to Moses. He calls Moses. Moses goes in. The Lord uses him to deliver Egypt out of, or deliver Israel out of Egypt. They go off in the wilderness. God calls Moses up on the mountain. God speaks face to face with Moses there. Where are the people? They're down below the mountain where there is a cloud keeping them away. God directs Moses to build the tabernacle. And the building of the tabernacle, the directions of the tabernacle begin with the Ark of the Covenant and the protection of the Ark and the veil. God says, I'm going to be there in your midst, but you can't get close to me. I will be there, but you're not allowed to be near me. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gives his life on the cross. The veil is torn that stood between the sinner and God so that we can draw near to the Lord in prayer. Not shouting out at a distance, but drawing near to the Lord in prayer. So having confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way and having a great high priest over the house of God, what's the first thing that we should do since we have confidence to enter? We should enter. We should draw near. He says, look, the veil has been torn. The way has been opened up. So first thing you need to do is just go in. Just go in, go draw near, go pray and go pray in the intimacy that nobody in the Old Testament ever had because now you have the Holy Spirit. Go pray with that kind of of love. But as you do that, remember that there are, are four conditions, I think, that we have here. They're found in verse 22. Those four conditions are with a sincere heart. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us draw near with our bodies washed with pure water. Let's talk about each of these. Drawing near with a sincere heart. Your your translation might say a true heart. 
It means drawing near in sincerity, drawing near in honesty. This is me. I'm coming before you as I am. There's no pretense. Lord, I desire you. I long for you. I need you. I'm desperate for you. I rely on you. I am resting in you. I'm calling out to you because I have no hope without you. That's such a strange thing to say for so many of us. Who would ever think that they could draw near to God faking it? But there are people who do it all the time. And it's not new. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord rebukes Israel for their hypocrisy and for their calloused view of who he is. He says in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires you to trample my courts? In verse 11, he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats. He says in verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I can't endure iniquity. And the solemn assembly, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They are a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Why? Because they're coming in hypocrisy. They're coming with insincerity. Isaiah chapter 29, he explains the spiritual state of Israel and what's going on as as he is speaking those words. This people draws near to me with their words and honors me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. We do, you know, we do, we do air quotes. We do air quotes. The Bible has air quotes. If, if, if Hebrew had air quotes in it, there'd be air quotes. They remove their hearts from me and their reverence is just words that they've memorized. They don't mean any of it. And there are people today who, who aren't any different. They think that because they were baptized or went for it at an altar call or go to church on a regular basis, they're, they're right with God. What we forget what you and I can forget is that the very things that God loves when they are done in faith and devotion, he hates when they're done out of just mechanical duty, out of just formality. He loves genuine religion. He hates pretense. He loves sincerity. He hates hypocrisy. So let's draw near to the Lord with a sincere heart, with a true heart with an honest heart before him, to worship him, to call upon him, to declare our need for him. He says also, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. This is within the context of this passage. This is the full assurance of faith that Jesus has opened up the way, that he has opened up a new and living way. How do I know that Jesus has actually opened up a new and living way? I mean, I'm standing in a, in a roughly square room with an, an eight or nine foot ceiling with a new floor and I'm just me 
and no offense, but you're just you. And there's no angels in here. And there's no glitter following from the ceiling vents. Praise God. And there's no smoke machine. Praise God. And how do we really know? You go to the temple and you've got the animals and you've got the altar and you've got the priests and the robes and the trumpets and all that and you feel like I've, I've had an experience here. How do you know here? It's the full assurance of faith that Jesus opened up this way and that when you enter in through faith because of his blood, you are entering in. You're changing spiritual location if you're not changing a physical location. Now, can you imagine drawing near to the Lord in prayer and hearing the Lord say to you, why should I let you approach me? What would your response be? I'll tell you what the biblical response would be in in light of Scripture. The biblical response would be, because, Father, the Lord Jesus opened up a new and living way for me by his blood, and I believe that. And the Father would say, yeah, that's right. That's why I permit you to approach me. But how many people would say, because I try to be good, because I go to church, because I give, because I don't cuss anymore, I've been baptized, because I need this now? See, we're to come with a full assurance of faith that Jesus has actually opened up the way for us to come to the Father in prayer. Now, by the way, full assurance of faith doesn't mean believing that Jesus will give us what we ask. It doesn't mean the confidence of saying, he'll say yes because I'm asking. No is also an answer. God always answers prayer. No is an answer. Sometimes the most important answers parents give children is no. Can I shave the cat? No. Romans 8.24 says we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. You come before the Lord, we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. And in Creighton this morning, there are a couple people in the community who've had strokes. Uh, One woman, uh, Pam Key, I forgot to mention her. Some of you know Pam Key. She's got double pneumonia right now. Other people have had injuries. We go before the Lord and and we, we pray. And what do we pray? Well, we pray heal her. We're not afraid to pray, heal her. We're not demanding it. We're not, we're not saying that somebody in here has this magical gift of being able to heal her. We believe that God can do what he wants and that he responds. So we ask him to heal. Does that mean he will because we ask? No, because we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. So Romans 8.24 says we don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us. And the advantage of that is because the Holy Spirit knows us so well and because the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God, he brings those two things together perfectly, perfectly. So, so when, when somebody goes before the Lord, when I go before the Lord and I say, you know something, Lord, I could really use an easy week. It's like the Holy Spirit captures the, those words as they leave my mouth. And then he goes to the father and he says, Father, Greg says he needs a really challenging week to build his faith. And if I was there listening to the Holy Spirit talk, I'd be saying, that's not what I said. And the Holy Spirit would say, you've got no idea what you're asking for. Let me do this. Let me do this. 
I got to hear my one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter say Papa yesterday. It didn't, it didn't flow trippingly off of her tongue. It wasn't Papa. It was more like Pa. Pa. But Sarah got her to say it two or three times. It's like, man, she's nailing that. It's a great birthday present to have. Can you imagine Sarah and Elliot taking all of their kids to a restaurant for lunch and then letting the one-and-a-half-year-old order? She can't speak. She doesn't know what to ask for. She doesn't know how to ask. They know she's hungry, like the Holy Spirit knows about us. And so they order for her what's right for her, as he does for us. Maybe at, the, at its most basic, the full assurance of faith is the confidence that when we draw near to the Lord, we are loved and accepted because of Jesus Christ. We are received by the Father as Jesus is received by the Father. And it's the simplicity of that that we celebrate. The, the third clause here is that we draw near having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience And the author here looks back to the old covenant. He looks back to the old sacrificial system. Some of the sacrifices involved during the process, taking the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkling it. Um, So yesterday I looked up every reference in the law to the sprinkling of blood in the course of a sacrifice. And there's only one time when it applies to a, a human being. Every other time it applies to the altar or the horns of the altar, various things. The one time it applies to a human being is with a leper. As a leper is being pronounced clean of their leprosy, there's a blood sacrifice, and the leper is sprinkled with blood. So as we think about being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, do you think we're in the position of the altar? I think we're probably in the position of the leper. But I do want you to notice that he doesn't say having our conscience cleansed. He says having our hearts cleansed from an evil conscience. So let's get our terms right and understand what we're talking about. Your conscience is that part of you that recognizes right and wrong because you're created in the image of God. And, And it might even be that kind of, a, of, a, of a, an immaterial organ within your mind and heart that the Lord can touch to get your attention. It's like your spiritual shoulder, and he's tapping on it. Except he uses it to create pain. And pain emotionally and spiritually is like pain physically. It usually tells us there's a problem that we need to pay attention to. I don't think that your conscience, once you've sinned and your conscience recognizes that sin, I don't think it goes on for the rest of your life blaming you for that sin. I think that's what we're being told here. I think when you commit an act of sin and your conscience goes, that was wrong, your heart hears your conscience say that was wrong and then your heart takes that statement that that was wrong and it begins to meditate on it and chew on it and roll it over. And your conscience just goes back to sleep until the next sinful thing that you do. And I, and I guess, just for the sake of full disclosure, I guess it's possible that your conscience could tell you that you did the right thing. And maybe I just do the right thing so little that I never hear my conscience praise me. But it usually seems that my conscience is beating me up, not patting my back. That's me. Maybe you're different. But your heart takes that statement from your conscience, that thing that you just did that was sin, and your heart won't let it go. 
your heart keeps going on with that, with the guilt. Your heart here is not your emotions. It's not your feelings. Heart in the Bible is the center of you as a person. It's, it's, your, it's everything you combined. It's like, talk, it's like we would talk about your soul. Your heart is where your will is. It's where your personality is. It's where your person is your feelings biblically are are in the bowels if you've got a king james bible you know that whenever in the gospels it says jesus was moved with compassion literally what it says is he was moved in his bowels and that makes sense when you hear really tragic news or terribly sad news where do you feel it you don't feel it up here you feel it in your gut Whenever you become aware of sin in your life, whenever you become aware of guilt, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt up here. You feel it in your gut. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your heart and your personhood becomes impacted and stained by an evil conscience. You sin, your conscience condemns you, your heart knows that you're guilty, and then your heart carries that for a long time. So our heart needs to be cleansed from the constant attack of an evil conscience. How do we do that? We confess our sins. We confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. That's a promise that God has made. So we say, yes, I sinned. Yes, I violated God's law by doing this. Lord, I confess my sin to you. I reach for your mercy. And Father, the Bible tells me that when I confess my sins to you, it's, it's okay. Please silence your phones if you haven't already. About five minutes ago, I got a spam call. I just kind of reached up and Let's turn to Hebrews 19, 19, trying to figure out where we were. So we we confess and we say, Father, you tell me to confess my sins. I'm confessing my sins. Here's what I did. And he says he forgives us our sins and he cleanses cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What do you do then when your heart continues to weigh you down with your guilt and your shame? What do you do? Let's say that you've already confessed that sin. What do you do? I think you, can, you, can, you continue to confess it. You continue to come back to the Lord and say, I need your help. I need your, your help to cleanse me. I've, I'm confessing this sin. I'm laying it out before you. We've got this promise that's found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. When, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. When our heart condemns us, what we think is that there is a judge who is pronouncing guilt over us. And what the Lord says is, look, right now in this stage of life, in this mortal body that you have, in this perishable that has not yet put on imperishable, your heart is going to condemn you. And you're just going to have to endure that. And you trust me that I am greater than your heart. You feel the weight of your sin. You confess your sin. You still feel the weight of it. You continue to confess, but you trust me that I am greater than your heart. As the scripture says, we walk by faith, not by sight, not by feeling, not by emotion, not by anything that we experience, but by faith in the promise of God. Let's draw near to the Lord, having confessed our sins and having our hearts cleansed from an evil conscience. The fourth clause is, let us draw near with our bodies washed with 
pure water. What's that mean? I think it means having pursued sanctification. It's another reference back to the Levitical system. The priests could not approach the altar or the, the holy place if they had not washed their hands and their feet. We've, we even get a picture of that in the upper room in John chapter 13. When they finished dinner, Jesus took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and he went around and he washed his disciples' feet. And Peter said, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any, any fellowship with me. You don't have any part with me. And Peter said, then we'll wash all of me. And Jesus said, no, Peter, I don't need to do that. You're clean, but not all of you. And so going back to my earliest days as a Christian, I remember my pastor, Pastor Jack in California, saying, we've been made clean by the Lord, but as we walk in this world, we get dusty feet. What do we do with our dusty feet? Well, we come to the Lord, we, we seek to have them cleansed, and we seek to live in the, in the reality of, of the declaration of righteousness. We've been declared righteous with the righteousness of Jesus himself. At the same time, we continue to sin. At the same time, we continue to sin. So we've got this weird paradox. If you've been born again in Christ, you've been declared righteous. It's, it's like God has already jumped you all the way forward to the end of your life, held the trial, and found you righteous just like his son is righteous and then brought you back in time to live out the rest of your life. You've been declared righteous, but you haven't yet been made righteous. You've de- been declared righteous, but you continue to sin. How do you rectify that? Some people just shrug and say, well, I've been declared righteous. I'm going to end up like Jesus, so who cares? And what the writer here says is, no, 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 no. You need to be washed with pure water. You need to be paying attention to these, to these things. You need to be pursuing sanctification. This is what David writes in Psalm 66. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That means that if if you come to church or you go to, to pray, you open your Bible and you bow next to your bed and you go to confess your sins and you go to pray and you go to petition the Lord, but you have scheduled sin. The same way some people schedule lunch. God's not hearing you. He's not going to hear you. It's the same thing that we see in, in Isaiah 1. You come before him with open hands that just don't care about who he is. And he says, I'm, I won't listen. I won't hear. This isn't an old covenant law. This is a principle of the holiness of God. He doesn't demand that we be sinlessly perfect. He demands that we be humble. He demands that we come having confessed our sin. And so we often come to the Lord while we're being tempted. Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. I'm being tempted. I know what you've called me to do, but this is out there. When you come to the Lord with that kind of temptation in your heart, you're coming to the only one who can help you. But if you've already decided to give in to that temptation and you come to the Lord knowing that as soon as you're done, you're going to go sin, you may as well not go to the Lord. He tells you that he's not going to hear you. He tells you that you're talking to yourself. We need to draw to the Lord with a desire to be clean. And again, we, we, we draw near to him seeking his grace and seeking his mercy because we can't be clean. 
But if it's not our desire to be clean, if it's our desire to try and game him in some way or trick him in some way, we're not going to get anywhere. I I usually end sermons with a bring it home section, and and most of this sermon has been bringing it home. So uh, allow me just to summarize what we have here. First, we have confidence and boldness to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Second, we have a high priest who is waiting for us, who is interceding for us right now. And because of that, let us draw near to him with a sincere heart, an honest heart. Let us draw near in the full assurance of faith that Jesus has opened the way for us. Let us draw near to the Lord with our hearts cleansed from an evil conscience, confessing our sin. And let us draw near to the Lord with hearts that are repentant and eager to know him and his holiness. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us as we think about these words then and prepare for communion. We ask that you would give us the the honesty and the humility to acknowledge our need before you, to rejoice in your grace in your provision. And we thank you for the love that you have shown to us.